I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Sorry, just forgot to mute everybody. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. We're continuing our Shema class. We've been looking at the first paragraph of Shema, which we said that the theme of the first paragraph is about loving Hashem. Each of the three paragraphs has a theme. And if we could, you know, sum up what the theme is for this paragraph, it would be loving Hashem. Last week, we spoke about loving Hashem with all your hearts. And we mentioned that the word levavcha is spelt with an extra vet to um, allude to the fact that we have to serve Hashem with both of our hearts, meaning our Yetzer Hara and our Yetzer Hatov. And we read that in the Chumash itself, it talks about the fact that when God looked at everything he created, it was tov me'od. And one of the Meforshim, the commentators, explain that the words tov me'od is actually referring to the creation of the Yetzer Hara. That the Yetzer Tov is a good thing, but the Yetzer Hara is very good. Because when we use and channel those things, those passions, that would tend to take us away from Hashem and we redirect them and channel them towards loving Hashem and using them in his service, this is tov me'od. This is really fantastic. We also said at the end of last class that one of the ways of loving Hashem, because it's very difficult for a physical human being to cleave to that, which is completely kulo, spiritual, ruchnias, right? One of the ways we can do this in this world is by cleaving to Talmidei Chachamim, to those who sit and learn his Torah, Yomam Velayla, if you like. And that, you know, we mentioned that it's interesting that the natural propensity of a human being, of a Jew, is to dislike these people. It even talks about this in the Gemara. And Rabbi Akiva himself was a great example of somebody who, before he, you know, had his turnaround and became Rabbi Akiva, it says about him that he hated the Talmide HaChamim to such a degree that he wanted to bite them. And whatever, I'm not going to go through what that bite meant. The fact that he bit them like a donkey as opposed to a dog. You can listen to the last uh, class. But again, we said that, uh, you know, if this is something that, you know, we're wired towards disliking people generally who are more religious than we are. I've made that joke many times. What's the definition of a fanatic, right? Anybody who's more religious than I am, okay? <laughs> and, um, you know, we have to be careful because the Gemara tells us it's a natural thing to dislike those people who have dedicated their lives to sitting and learning Torah. Nebuch, you know, but we have to realize those are the people who are holding up the world. And this is a way of loving Hashem in a manner that is beyond the average person. And so by cleaving to Talmide Achamim, supporting them financially, giving money to yeshivas, etc., this is a way of showing our love for Hashem by loving those who 
sit and learn his Torah and as we're taught, keep the world spinning around. Because as Hashem says, if not for my Torah that was being learned, that's being learned day and night, the world would have no reason to exist. The world would stop. And that's even one of the reasons for the fact that there's different time zones in the world. So that when one Talmud Chacham, one Torah scholar is going to sleep in Canada, another one's waking up in another part of the world where morning has broken and beginning the learning of Torah again, so that there's always somebody learning Torah. This is one of the explanations for why there's all these time zones in the world, so that the world could keep on spinning. Okay, we're moving on to the second part of the uh, of how we love Hashem, and we we say that we have to love Hashem with all your soul, the whole nafshecha, with all your nefesh. Now, at the end of the class, I mentioned that the whole is um, corresponds to Avraham Avinu, right? Avraham always represents the concept of chesed, of love, of the positive mitzvot, of loving Hashem, which we said loving Hashem is one of the 613 mitzvot. It's a positive mitzvah. It's actually one of the six constant mitzvot that you can do all the time. I mentioned, you know, if any of you have ever had a crush in your life, you know, a mad crush on some kid in school, if you went to public school, it's more likely, um, you know, and you were obsessed with this person and thinking about them all the time and hoping they were thinking of you and waiting for them to say hello or look your way. And, you know, this is the kind of obsession that really the Torah demands of us to have when it comes to Hashem and loving Hashem. It's a constant mitzvah. It's a mitzvah you can do any time in your head. Of course, gratitude and noticing all the good things in your life, recognizing that absolutely everything comes from Hashem in your life, good, the bad, and the ugly, as I've said. And realizing that is a way of being constantly God-conscious. And of course, all the mitzvahs that we do from, you know, every single day, um, you know, uh, David Amalek said, what does Hashem ask of you? Ma doresh Hashem mimcha, and the word ma, mem hey, um, is um, one of the uh, drushes on that is he's asking from you to have meya, to have 100 brachas every day, to make 100 blessings every single day, and this is the way we can attach ourselves to love of Hashem. But we're going to go on to the next one, as I said, to love Hashem with all your soul. And this is Keneged. This corresponds to Yitzchak Avinu, which we know very clearly was willing to give up his life, Al-Kiddush Hashem, with the Akedah. He was 37 years old. He wasn't a little kid. He knew exactly what he was doing. And... He was ready to give up his life to be a korban tamima. We're told that it's as if he did do it, even though Hashem told them to stop. He told Abraham not to do it. But it's as if it says the ashes of Yitzchak are always in front of Hashem. And because of that, there's a merit that we as Jews and as Yitzchak Avinu's children have that God, you know, recognizes our mesiris nefesh, our self-sacrifice, that we have as Jews demonstrated time and time again throughout the ages. And just to mention this idea that I've mentioned before, you know, that we have inherited the spiritual DNA of our ancestors, of our Avot and Imaho. And one of those spiritual strengths 
is the fact that Jews throughout the ages have gone to their deaths rather than um, rather than apostasy, rather than leave the concept of their belief in God behind. At pain of death, they've been able to give up their lives. And I remember Rabbi Sipora Heller once said, you know, the simplest Jews, not necessarily the most learned Jews, Jews that were, you know, sitting and learning Torah, but the simplest Jews were willing to give up their lives for Hashem because of the spiritual DNA that we all carry that comes to us through Yitzchak Avinu. So let me tell you a story, a true story about a woman named Esther Fleischman. She was 19 years old and she was in Bergen-Belsen, of course, during the Holocaust. And she knew that she was going to die. And she basically was moaning and groaning. And anybody who walked by, she was saying to them, you know, I can't go on much longer. Please, please get me some water. And she was in a semi-conscious state, it says, moaning and groaning for about two days. And finally, another woman who heard her and heard that the taps had been just turned on risked her life for this woman, Esther, to collect some drops of water, which measured about a quarter of a cup. And she brought the water to Esther to give her to drink. She said to her, here, wet your lips. And this Esther Fleischman replied, I know I'm going to die and drinking a few cups, drops of water is certainly not gonna save my life. I just wanted the water so that I could wash my hands before I say the Shema, before I die. She wanted her hands to be clean, to be pure, to be ritually pure, to be able to say Hashem's name and make this her final act. So can you imagine she held on for two days until she got this water. And it says after she poured the water on her hand and said the Shema, when she reached the word ve'ahavta, and you should love Hashem ve'ahavta es Hashem alokecha, her soul expired and she died. So this is a, you know, story not so long ago of a woman who understood that you have to know what you're going to live for and then you'll die for it, right? If you, Rev. Noah Weinberg used to say, know what you would, know what you would die for, I'm sorry. Know what you would die for and then live for it. Whatever you'd give up your life for, that's what you should be living for. And we know that there are Jews like this woman, Esther Fleischman, who went to her death with such clarity of what she wanted her last act to be, because obviously she lived her life with this incredible closeness to Hashem. So... To continue on with this idea of going to be being willing to give up our life for Hashem, I mentioned before that one of the ways that the um, Nazi concentration camp um, officer said that he knew that every single Jew was was had expired inside the gas chamber was when he heard the last Shema Yisrael being screamed out. He knew that the job had been done. So we have this idea that we have to be willing to give up our life for our beliefs. And, you know, the 
example that is brought down over and over again is the example of Rabbi Akiva. And of course, the 10 martyrs that we read about on Yom Kippur, but specifically Rabbi Akiva. And I just want to go through his story quickly from Rabbi Lamb's book. It says that Rabbi Akiva Rabbi Akiva was brought to trial before the tyrant Rufus Tyrannus. And the time for the recitation of the Shema had arrived and Rabbi Akiva read the Shema and smiled. Tyrant Rufus said to him, old man, either you're a magician and therefore you don't feel the torture or you ignore suffering, implying that he was a masochist said Rabbi Akiva to him, may your breath leave you. I'm neither a magician nor one who is indifferent to pain. It is rather that all my life I have recited the Shema and was troubled by one verse, wondering when I would have the opportunity to fulfill the three elements in it. You shall love Hashem your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your possessions. I have loved him with all my heart. I've loved him with all my possessions, but I was not yet tested as to my soul. Now that I have reached the stage where I am to surrender all your soul and the time for the reading of the Shema has arrived, I shall not be distracted from loving him. That is why I recite and I smile. He barely finished speaking these words when his soul soared upwards. Rabbi Akiva said his whole life, he'd never fulfilled the mitzvah of the Shecha, loving Hashem with all your soul, with all your life. And this was his opportunity to do it. Another famous story that we read during Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, of course, was written by Rabbi Amnon of Mainz, Germany, about a thousand years ago. And um, it's the story of this rabbi, Rabbi Amnon, who was friendly with the Bishop of Mainz. And this Bishop asked him to convert to Christianity and consider betraying his God. And Rabbi Amnon said to him, you know what, I, I'll, I'll, let me think about it. Upon returning home, he was distraught at having even given the impression that it was something he would consider to betray his God. He spent three days in solitude, fasting and praying to be forgiven for his sin and did not return to the bishop. Finally, the bishop had him brought and demanded Rav Amnon reply that his tongue should be cut out for the sin of saying he would, not, he would consider the matter. Further, furious, the bishop said that the sin was not in what he said, but in his legs for not coming as he had promised. He ordered that Rabbi Amnon's feet be chopped chopped off joint by joint. They did the same to his hands. After each amputation, Rav Amnon was asked if he would convert, and each time he refused. Then the bishop ordered that he be carried home, a maimed and mutilated cripple together with his amputated legs, limbs. When Rosh Hashanah arrived, he asked to be carried to the Aaron in the shul, and he asked to be allowed to sanctify God's name in the synagogue. 
And he recited the famous prayer, Unasana Tokef, that we all say on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And of course, he expired there on the Bima. Again, another great Jew whose story lives on of having regretted even considering or giving the impression that he would leave his God and consider converting and died this horrible death because of it. So what Rav Yisrael Salanter says that when we say b'chol nafshecha, even though one of the kavanas that we're supposed to have, the intention that we should have is that very high level of saying that I would be willing to give up my life for God. Now, halachically, we know there's only three situations in which a person has to be willing to give up their life, right? The three big sins. One is murder. If somebody tells you, if you don't kill somebody, that we're going to kill you, you have to allow yourself to be killed. The second one is idolatry, which we just gave examples of that with uh, this rabbi from Mainz, Rabbi Amnon, right? That if you are told convert or die, a Jew has to be willing to die. And the third one is uh, illicit and immoral relationships. Somebody says, if you don't, you know, have relations with this person, then I'm going to kill you. You have to be willing to give up your life. Now, this is a very simple explanation. There are more, um, there's more to it than just this. For example, one of the reasons why you would have to give up your life with idolatry is only if you were asked to uh, um, convert or leave God in a public setting. There has to be a number of people who a public place where everybody will see a Jew becoming an apostate and it will bring a huge hill Hashem. But if it was, for example, something private, you would not have to give up your life. So, for example, we know the famous story of Hanukkah of Hannah and her seven sons. That Hannah and her seven sons all went to their deaths. And the reason for this was because the king at that time or the emperor or whatever, he called a public gathering and everybody was there, hundreds and thousands of people perhaps. And this was done in front of everybody to say, look at these Jews, they're going to give in, they're going to bow down to me and you know, leave their God, their belief in God behind. So when it's done in a public way like that, a Jew has to give up their life. But again, you know, every case is different, but generally speaking, if it's public, then you have to give up your life. With murder and, and uh, immorality, probably different. Okay, so Rabbi Yisrael Salantu. So, so the point is, is that when we say the words B'chon Shecha on the highest level, we're supposed to be thinking that I would be willing to give up my life for God. Now, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter explains that there are other ways to give up your life for God rather than literally dying. And he says it doesn't mean your life alone. Whenever you don't give into a temptation, you're fulfilling loving Hashem with all your soul. Okay? 
So, you know, if you're out for dinner with everybody and, you know, maybe it's not a kosher restaurant or maybe it's a kosher restaurant of dubious uh, standards and you really want to eat and you're really hungry, uh, you know, prepare yourself before maybe you eat before you come or no, let's make it, let's make it a real sacrifice. You know, you're, you're starving but the hexures aren't good and you hold yourself back from doing it. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter is saying, this is a way of the Shecha, giving your life for Hashem, right? Right now at this moment, I feel like I'm going to die if I don't have this thing. I'm going to die if I don't get this, whatever it is, this temptation. And you are able to control yourself and you're doing it because it's the right thing to do, and it's what Hashem would want you to do, then you've just given up your life. Rebetzin, can I ask a question in that context? Please do. Um, Who who am I talking to? Maureen. Oh, sorry, Hannah. Oh, Hannah, go ahead. Um, I think that it's important to address medical exemptions um, and circumstances under which a person must eat in order to survive, right? We're supposed to protect our bodies. Um, It just sounds to me that when that's given as a blatant statement, it seems to kind of um, go against the other obligations that we have as Jews, um, you know, to take care of the sanctity of our bodies and our health, which is also an obligation. So, for instance, someone like myself who's type 2 diabetic, um, there has happened and there can happen circumstances whereby you can either, you know, be willing to literally die (laughs) or get very sick for the sake of upholding, you know, rabbinical Judaism. Um, Or you can follow the medical exemptions that allow for you to be able to eat something that is non-kosher in order to avoid getting very sick. Um, or collapsing or being hospitalized. I mean, there's many examples, right? There's there's the pregnant woman who's craving pork. There's, you know, there's the woman who, like, people who are in psychological or physical distress, um, that for whatever reason, they are going to have to break those laws. So there's, mm-hmm. there's, the, there's the, yes, you know, I really want that cheeseburger in the restaurant. That's one thing. But then there's the other side where there's true medical fact. And it just concerns me when I see it being taught in such a general way that you have to be willing to die and allow yourself to get sick for the sake of upholding cash root. And we see people passing out in front of synagogues because, you know, they feel they need to fast. And I, as a healthcare professional, find myself having to try to mediate with people who are destroying their health for the sake of upholding Torah teachings. So I just feel like I want to bring that up because... What happens is when people don't understand that there are medical exemptions and that you're not supposed to be willing to die for the sake of upholding cash roots. So, so could I interrupt, um, Hannah, if you don't, if you don't mind? That there's, a, want, there's a middle I, ground somewhere, right? So let, let me just address what you're saying quickly, because, um, you know, we have an idea in Torah, which is high Bahem, right? That you should live by the mitzvot, not die by them. So certainly exactly. if you need to eat whatever it is, literally chazir, right? 
because of an exemption and because it's a life-threatening thing that you have, then obviously, yes, you must eat it. But that's not really what I'm talking about here. I'm talking more about any kind of temptation, not necessarily food-related, okay? Where when a person overcomes this kind of temptation, the Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, who was the leader of the Musser movement, um, which... Uh, emphasizes character development was saying that being able to withstand or withhold yourself from a temptation regardless of what kind is as if you have given up your life okay right. but thank well, you for I that point that's very important i hope yes. that that i'm clear yes. okay the next thing is that we're talking about shacha, and you know one great thinker said, a love that's not prepared, and we can think of this even in terms of our human relationships, right? A love that's not prepared to make the sacrifice of even the smallest physical desire is a vain pretense, okay? And, you know, we sometimes have to give up, as my friend uh, that I'm learning with told me, she uh, grew up with her father who was an Olympic athlete, and one of the things he taught her, she, he taught her a lot of wisdom based on physical excellence that you can apply to spiritual excellence. He said, sometimes you have to give up what's good in order to have the great, have great, right? So in the spiritual way, we'd say sometimes you have to give up that momentary pleasure, right? That urge to give in to whatever it is. That good feeling that you might have at the moment in order to reach great. And the idea is that the nearness of God, closeness to God, and of course, there's nothing more close than literally giving up your soul for God, your life for God, right? There can't be any greater sacrifice. That nearness to Hashem is good in itself. It's not a means to an end. It's an end in itself. And of course, all of our strivings in this world, and of course, God, again, back to Hannah's point, wants us to live by the mitzvahs, not die by them, right? And we certainly don't give up our lives except for extreme circumstances, right? Judaism does everything for the sake of life. Um, but giving up in other ways in our life is a way of demonstrating to Hashem that we want his nearness, and that's the greatest good. So when a man gives himself up entirely to the one and only God, this resignation makes him harmoniously at one with whatever occurs in his life. So just in general, if we decided, like we said at the beginning of the Shema, we're accepting all Malchus Shemayim, the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. It sounds very uh, Shakespearean, right? But in simple terms, the, one of the kavanas that we're supposed to have when we're saying the first two lines of Shema, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, and Baruch Shem Kavod Malchuto Le'olam Ve'ed, we are supposed to be saying to Hashem, I, I am, my mission in this world is to be your servant, is to um, carry out the directives of your Torah in the very best way that I can, which will result in my nearness to you of which there is no greater pleasure available in the world than nearness to Hashem, than the neshama being able to connect with the source of all life 
while still in a physical body, right? This is the challenge. And this is the way we develop ourselves and build our spiritual muscles. So let's move on to Bechom Me'odecha. Bechom Me'odecha means with all of your veriness, okay? Literally, the word Me'od means very, right? With all your veriness. And the rabbis explained that what it's referring to is our possessions, that you should love Hashem with all your possessions. Bechom Mamonecha, using all of your material wealth and blessing in service of Hashem, rejecting any gain or acquisition acquired by transgressing the Torah. Bechome Odecha means in every condition, whether it be a condition of wealth that you find yourself in or a condition of poverty. And this bracha Bechome Odecha corresponds to Yaakov. We know that Yaakov Avinu is the one who taught us about tithing in the Torah, right? To give a tenth. He's the one who said, I'm going to give a tenth of my um, earnings, of my wealth to, to tzedakah. I'm going to tithe them. And um, of course, God promises long life only for two mitzvahs in the Torah. And one of them is... Um, actually, no, that's wrong. I'm sorry. But the point is, is that Hashem promises that a person who is careful to tithe his money will never be lacking. Okay? So that's a very interesting idea. So another story that just comes to mind that it says that Hashem says, whether in, sorry, the rabbis teach, whether you're rich or you're poor, the chome odecha means in every condition that I find myself. So I once heard a story about a man who was extremely wealthy and he was a great Jew and he used all of his possessions to serve Hashem and to use it for nearness of Hashem. And lo and behold, even though, of course, we have this promise that if you do this, you'll stay wealthy. In this case, as the years went on, he lost all of his money probably on the stock market, right? That's usually how it happens. And he was impoverished. And he turns to Hashem in heaven and he says, Hashem, I don't understand you. I don't understand it. You know that I used all of my wealth as a means to fulfill your Torah, to do for others, being Adam Lechavero, to support the Jewish people. Why is it that I've become impoverished? And the the uh, so to speak, the bus pull, Hashem basically answered him by saying, you did fantastic. You got 100% as my servant serving me with wealth. Now I want to see what kind of a servant you'll be without wealth. If you'll continue to serve me in the same way. And of course, that's the story of Eov, right? We know the story of Job where, you know, the uh, angels come and taunt God, so to speak, and say, sure, Job is a good servant. He's got everything. He's got wealth. He's got children. He's got everything any human being would want. But you just watch. You take something away from him. And let's just see if he's going to be as great a servant of God as he once was. So this story is kind of a parallel of this. God says, you did a great job. Now I want to 
Now I want to see you serve me in a different situation, right? And if you're able to do that, then you're a complete and complete whole person, okay? Able to rise to any challenge, okay? Um, I just want to read from Lisa Aiken's book on this idea of loving Hashem with all your possessions. And um, just something that she says that I think is very important to understand what it means as a Jew. So she says, a Jew may say that he loves God, but really, he loves money a lot more. As long as loving the Almighty doesn't cost anything, he will love him. As soon as it requires giving 10% of his money to charity, spending money on religious articles, and paying a small premium for kosher food, he might be a little less committed to a relationship with God. The Shema tells us that it costs money to have a relationship with God. We accept that it costs money to develop and sustain a relationship between people. Singles spend money on a date. Married men buy a spouse and children clothes, food, presents, and the like. Business people spend money to take associates out for meals and entertainment. But for some reason, people think that having a relationship with God should be free. Anyway, it goes on and on, obviously, about people who will choose things uh, in a confused priority way, spending money on all kinds of transitory, ethereal purchases, and not investing in that which is eternal, right? For example, day schools, right? Day schools are expensive. The money that you spend in day schools, God counts it as if it's part, it can be part of your tithing even, because being the Hanif, your children in Torah is so important. And yet how many parents choose public schools because, you know, there's no tuition. So these are struggles and these are challenges. But again, loving Hashem with all of our possessions means that it costs money. To inv It's an investment in this relationship. So the whole of Torah, we're told, is nothing but the revelation of how we have to prove our love for God in our actions. Me'od means very much, referring to possessions, because man has a natural desire to acquire more than he needs. Okay, so me'odecha, again, is the idea that man will, will always run after more than he actually needs. So it's an interesting thing. The next question is, here is, v'chol nafshecha u'v'chol me'odecha. It's such a strange order. Wouldn't you think that your possessions would come before giving up your life? Doesn't giving up your life seem to be the most incredible act of them all compared to giving up your possessions but rather what the Torah is teaching us what the rabbis are telling us in this thing is yes life before money because you know you would think that if a person would give up their life who would care who cares about their money their money is obviously secondary but Rashi says there there can be a person whose money is more precious than his life 
that giving up your life could be easier, God forbid, right? How many people jumped off roofs in the depression, right? When they lost all their money or even today, you know, I remember dating a guy and, you know, he was a wealthy guy in my early years. And I remember hearing years later that his father had committed suicide because he had lost all his money. Sloalenu. But the idea here, the deep insight into human nature is that for some people, your money or your life, right? Their money is more important than their very life. And Rabbi Tversky goes on to explain that people smoke, people who smoke know it can kill them. And, you know, they might be able to control themselves in the workplace in order to be able to keep their job. And this is the same idea. Oh, and the fact that they'll have the ability to earn money is more important than their life, meaning literally that, you know, they'll keep on smoking outside of the workplace, even though they can control themselves inside the workplace, because again, this idea that their money is more important than their life. Okay, so let's move on to the next words. And these words, just find it. For those of you who have a sitter in front of you, it's nice to be able to follow along. And these words, so what are these words? So these words refer to the words of the Torah, right? Reflect on the words of the Torah, because by reflecting on the words of the Torah, this creates an awareness of Hashem. We said before that in the Shemona Esri prayer, every day, three times a day, we say, Hashivenu avinu lesora secha. Hashivenu avinu. Return us. How are we going to return to you, Hashem? Only through your Torah. Only by learning your Torah. Learning your Torah brings us back to you, brings us closer to you. God says, in the Talmud, it says, God said, I created the Yetzir Hara, and I created its, the antidote. I created the Rafua. I created, you know, that which can control and channel the Yetzir Hara, which is my Torah. The learning of my Torah is the antidote. So desire to attach yourself to the Torah and his ways. And it goes on to say, which I am commanding you, Hayom, today. So what, it, what does it mean today? The Torah was given over 3,500 years ago or 3,400 years ago now. But of course, we know that today means that the Torah should never be in our eyes like some old edict, but fresh and new like the newest fashion, the newest style that everybody runs after. And the idea of today means it's as relevant as today in 2022 as it was then. It will never become irrelevant, outmoded, outdated because the truths that are found in the Torah are, are humankind doesn't change and the purpose of the world doesn't change. And it's all there in the Torah. So every day we have to look to it. Rabbi Schwab in his book, um, uh, Prayer. What's it called? On Prayer. 
he tells a story about how he was sitting with a Jew once. And this Jew was talking to him about, um, you know, that he keeps the mitzvot because of tradition, tradition, tradition. He wants to carry on the traditions of his parents before him. And Rabbi Schwab, who, of course, was an Orthodox Jew and a, a rabbi, he said to him, that's not why I keep the mitzvot. I don't care about tradition. Who cares about tradition? He says, I keep the mitzvot because God said so. And it's not about what happened yesterday and the day before and 100,000 years ago. I'm keeping the Torah today because it's from today. Because God said today. I commanded them to you this day. And I like to say, you know, a lot of people live a traditional type of Judaism. You know, they do it because my mother did it. My grandmother did it. My great-grandmother did it. They lit the candles, so I light the candles. They, you know, only ate fish in restaurants. So I also only eat fish in restaurants when I go out to a trafe, not kosher restaurant. People carry on the traditions. But of course, we know that if a person, if, if, it doesn't, if it's not meaningful for you today, then those traditions eventually die out. We used to have a sign on our wall at Iyat, where I studied as a Balchuva. It said, Jewish, Jewish, um, Jewish education is not information, but transformation. If it's not alive and real, or like I like to say, listen, you're running on an empty gas tank. Your booby filled it up. Maybe your parents drove on it for a while. They gave you the car. You're down at, you know, close to empty now. If you keep driving that car with their gas, you know, whatever they did or didn't do, that's what I do. Well, eventually the tank is going to be empty and you have to fill it up today, today, today. You have to fill it up so your kids can ride on it, but then they're going to have to fill it up, right? So that's the idea that Rabbi Schwab was saying to this traditional Jew. I do it because God told me to, not because of tradition. Okay, so we go on and we say... Um, the Hayua Debarim Ha'ela, and these words, the words of the Torah, Asher Anochim Hayom, which I am commanding you right now, today, Alevavacha, put it on your heart. So there's a whole question about why the word on your heart. Doesn't it make sense to put it in your heart? Why does the word why does the words of the Shema say Alevavacha? So this is a beautiful idea. So Rav Shimshon Rafal Hirsch says, we should place our hearts under the weight of these words and allow our thoughts and feelings to be mastered by them. So the Torah and the teachings of the Torah are supposed to, in, are supposed to be integrated and impose themselves on our emotions and our feelings, frame them. Teach us how to feel, how to channel our emotions. So by putting them on our heart, these words will do that. Another idea here is that it's hard to take what you know in your head and put it in your heart. I think the Kutzker Rebbe said, 
from the head to the heart is as distant from each other as from the heavens to the earth, right? A person can know a lot of stuff. A person can know what's right and wrong. A person can understand things philosophically and practically that are logical and make sense, but we all live with cognitive dissonance. Or what I like to say is every human being is a walking contradiction, right? We might espouse certain things, we might tell other people certain things, but then we find ourselves often or sometimes, you know, it depends how hypocritical we may be, but even the, the, even the least hypocritical person, the person who tries to live what he believes, live what his values are, we're often surprised by ourselves at how easily it can be that even though our heads know it, our emotions and our actions don't always follow. So we can understand something intellectually, but it's not, we're not affected emotionally. So again, alavavcha, a mashal here is that even if it's hard for you to put it into action, if you put it alavavcha, it's like water that accumulates behind a dam. The water's there and one slight hole in the dam can cause all the backed up water to flow through. All you need is one little opening, one emotional breakthrough. And all of a sudden, all that stuff in your head filters down and falls into your heart. All of those intellectual insights become effective. It's hard to assimilate everything we know, but if we put it on our heart, when insight or some kind of event in our life stirs us, then all of that stuff, all of that information, all of that Torah learning, all of that book stuff that we've been putting all of on our hearts can now fall into our hearts. You know, my husband used to say, I do great funerals when he was a rabbi. And it was a, a strange line. I'm, I do great funerals. But what he was saying and how he explained it to me is he said, you know, Funerals, as sad as they are, are such amazing opportunity for Kiruv, for bringing secular Jews, Jews who are not, you know, developed in Torah, closer to their heritage. Because it's at life-altering moments, whether it's the birth of a child, right, a bar mitzvah, a wedding, and chas a funeral, that people's hearts are more open their minds are more open and you're able to drop ideas and wisdom and Torah into their hearts at those moments. So again, the idea that, you know, we have a lot of good ideas, but they sit on top of our heart and we need some kind of something that opens us up and allows us to access all of that into our emotions. And I just want to read to you from Rabbi Lamb's book. Uh, the Katska Rebbe says a beautiful thing on it. Um, hold on a second.
Kutzker typically expressed the most psychologically and spiritually profound truths in highly concentrated and sharp aphorisms. He said, even if you feel that your heart is shut tight and words of Torah do not penetrate it, because you are weary or inattentive or preoccupied or simply dull, do not despair. Do not cease your efforts. Even if you feel that your heart is securely locked against the transcendent message of the divine, just let those words pile up upon your heart. Be confident that in due time, your heart will open up. And when it does, inspiration will come. Then all that has been gathered in, lying patiently upon your heart, will tumble into your newly opened heart. So again, to understand the words, says put it on your heart and not in your heart. And we go on. And you should teach it to your children. Teach it thoroughly to your children. Why does it use the word shinantam? Why doesn't it say lamad? Use the word to teach. Right? Teach it to your children. What kind of a word is this? Shinantam. So the word shinantam comes from the word shame. Tooth. Teeth. It's an expression of sharpness. When you teach it, don't be wishy-washy. Teach your children in a very clear way what's right and what's wrong. The words of Torah should be sharp in your mouth, meaning you should know it so well that you'll be able to answer immediate, immediately and not hesitate. Roshinshin Rafal Hirsch says, be strict and clear in teaching Torah to children. Don't compromise. Because these are the times we live in. We have to be soft. We can't, uh, you know, put too much on them. We have to uh, make life easy for them. Whatever generation we're living in, right? Especially this generation. So he says, Hirsch says, we have to not go with the times, but remember to teach Torah clearly and strictly so that the children understand how important it is. He says, just like a child loses their baby teeth, and then gets a new set. Torah should grow with your child. The teaching of the Torah, in terms of being sharp, you should be teaching a child according to his way, so that he shall never depart from it, right? One child has to be taught in this way, another child has to be taught in that way. It has to be with intellect, thought out, each child differently, sharply so that they can understand it. I have to tell you the cutest story that I heard when I was teaching these words, Vishinantam Levanecha, and you should um, you know, teach your children. So I had a very famous doctor in my class when I taught this course at Shari Shemayim, and she put up her hand and she said something that I've never forgotten. She said, you know what I used to think the shinantam levanecha meant? I thought it meant, and your teeth should be white. Again, shame is the word tooth. So shinantam means your teeth. Lavan is the color white. The shinantam levanecha, your teeth should be white. And she told the class, the reason I thought this was because 
whenever I would go to my Bubby's house, she would always say, okay, it's time for bed. Let's brush your teeth and then we'll say the Shema. So she thought that in order to say the Shema, your teeth have to be white. Isn't that adorable? You know, it's like those things like, you know, you think something when you're a kid and then you find out one day when you're 15 or 20 or 30, like, no, that was wrong, right? I used to have that with when my friends would say they're going standby on a plane. I would think you're going standby. You mean you're standing up the whole trip? You know, that's what I thought standby meant. And I thought, gee, that's hard. I hope like maybe somebody lets you sit on their armchair or something in the plane while you're eating your lunch. I mean, how do you do that? And I can't remember how many years until I expressed what I thought that somebody said, that's not standby. Anyway, we've all got those uh, childlike um, <clears throat> associations that we find out are not 100% right. So this was hers, Vishinantam Levanecha. Okay, Dibarta Bam. Sorry, Levanacha. Let's finish with this. So, first of all, why is it plural? You should teach it to your sons. What if you only have one son? So, it says that it refers to your students, your Talmidim. Had it meant sons, it would have been in the singular because a person usually teaches only one child at a time. So, it's referring to a person's students. In many places, Discipline are called a person's sons, and a teacher is called a father. So it's saying when you're teaching this discipline of Torah, you should teach it in a fatherly way. You should teach your students in a fatherly way, right? The Rebbe's that the children love more than any other Rebbe are the Rebbe's who are kind and give them a little pat on the cheek and make them feel like they love them, like they love their own children. And there's actually a halacha that if your teacher and your parent come into the room, who are you supposed to rise for first? Do you rise in honor of your parent? We have a mitzvah, right? The Ten Commandments, keep it of the aim. Or do you get up for your Rebbe? And the halacha says that you rise for your Rebbe, your Rebbe takes priority over a, a um, parent. And of course, the answer given is that your parents give you olam hazeh. They were responsible for the creation, the physical creation, and for giving you life in this world. But your Rebbe is giving you olam haba. He's giving you the next world. He's teaching you Torah and spiritual principles and how to live your life so that you will have the next world, which of course is the real world, the eternal world, the world where we um, reap the produce of all of the efforts that we're engaged in in this world. Okay. Um, the Dibarta Bam, and you should speak in them. Rashi says, you should make them the main thing, not the secondary. When you speak about things, the primary thing you speak to your children about is wisdom, Torah, how to live life, what God wants from us. All the other banal conversation, the conversation that we need to do because, you know, we've got things to execute in the everyday. 
those are obviously a part of life, but your children should see you as somebody who is thinking and talking about Torah principles as being primary in your life. Okay. And of course, your actions. The last thing I want to say before we leave is the word bum, base mem, which we all giggle at in Hebrew school. I don't know if you did, but we did in St. Catharines, right? A little comic relief after three hours of after school Hebrew school. <laughs> we all needed that, right? Um, so it's actually an illusion that you should speak in them. It's referring to bet, refers to Bereshis, the first letter of the Torah. And the mem refers to the first letter in the Talmud, in the oral Torah, me'amasai, which begins the oral tradition, the first Mishnah. In other words, you should speak about, to, you should speak in them, meaning your speech should cover the entire Torah. The written to the, Torah, to the oral Torah, the whole encompassing of the Torah is what you should have, your knowledge should be, and what you should be speaking about. And we're going to go on next week, when you're sitting down in your house, when you're going on your way, when you're sitting down and when you're getting up, sorry, when you're lying down, you're getting up all the time. And I just want to end with a beautiful idea that I heard uh, this week at the Village Shul. I spoke there and Zale Newman was speaking and I caught a little bit of his class. Um, and he said, based on the Pasuk that we read in this week's Parsha, Parsha's Truma, Veshachanti Besocham, Asuli Mikdash, Veshachanti Besocham. God says to the Jewish people, I want you to make me a tabernacle. I want you to make me a portable shul while you're in the desert, right? So that I can, I can dwell. And by the word, the, 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 the month that we're in, Adar, actually stands for Adar. The Aleph is Hashem. And Dar, like the word Dira in Hebrew, means to dwell. That God dwells in this month. This month always comes out at the same time as this Parsha, Teruma, or Titzava, where God says, make me a home in this world. I know I'm everywhere, up, down, right, left, and all around, as Sale Newman, as Uncle Moishi saying on many tapes, right? But I don't want to just be everywhere. I want to be in a home. I want to have a resting place in this world because I don't feel at home in this world because 7 billion people don't necessarily want me here. But for you who understand, that I need a home in this world. You make me a home. So God says, and I will dwell in them. And of course, Rashi asks the question, make me a mikdash and I will dwell. It should say in it. I should dwell in it. You're making me this house and I'll dwell in it. Rashi says, no, it says because God is saying, I will dwell in them, in each Jew. Each Jew is meant to be a Merkava, a chariot, uh, four wheels, whatever it is. In the olden days, it was a chariot. Zale said he's a Ferrari, okay? But every Jew is supposed to be a resting place, a friendly place that has a welcome home sign or, hey, we're so happy you're home. 
where Hashem feels that he's welcome, that he's with you every day when you're getting up, when you're going to sleep, you are representing God in every place that you go. And God himself feels comfortable, feels at home to be with you, to be dwelling in you. So I want to leave you with that beautiful thought. I wish you all Shavua Tov. I wanted to also say that this class is sponsored in memory of my cousin, unfortunately, a year ago, Barney Kussner, my first cousin who unfortunately went for a jog one night um, when the weather was kind of the same as this. And a young man in his 50s, and they found him on the side of the road. Um, and so his neshama should have an aliyah ben Sion chayim ben nachum. And we should only hear of good news, besoros tovos, refuah shalemas for everybody. And mirz Hashem, a time when there will be no more sickness and no more tragedy. And we'll all be together in Yerushalayim, Yer HaKodesh. Amen. Love you all. Have a great week and see you on Wednesday for those of you who can make it. Take good care. Thank you for all your comments. Thank you, Hannah, for pointing out that important distinction. Take care.